0: We also welcome our newest celebrity guest scorer, attorney Adam Vanderwerf. Hi, Tom. How are you this evening? I think we're fine. Are you ready to discuss some office space? I am so
1: ready. I love this movie.
0: All right. So before we get that, as a new guest to the show, we'd like to ask you always a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you a little bit. So just a very simple, tell us about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies.
1: Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm an attorney and I work with Dana, of course. But other than that, I love watching movies over and over again. It's one of my favorite pastimes. And then reading, hiking, biking, being outside. As far as why I love movies, it started with my mom read to me all the time when I was a kid, and when she would do that, I would develop stories and what that looked like in my head. And then when I transitioned to reading it for myself, that kept going. And it was always cool to me to compare what I would see when I created these these worlds in my imagination versus what was on the screen. So I really love movies based on books.
0: So then what is your favorite movie and why? So I've been
1: dithering about this question. And while I say I love movies based on books, Star Wars was always my favorite as a kid. And that's launched quite a few books that I read. It's my movie I go to when I'm sick. It was the movie that my parents showed me when I was sick when I was young, because it picked me up, made me smile. I love the Ewoks and Yoda and all the jokes that went with it. I don't know. It There's lots of nostalgia there.
0: You're, you're aware that Yoda doesn't show up until Empire Strikes Back and the Ewoks are not till Return of the Jedi, correct? That's not in Star Wars.
1: Well, I tend to lump them all together. If I sit down to watch one, I watch all three.
0: So trilogy time and you watch it while you're sick. Are you Ted Mosby? I might be. Okay. Third question. What makes a good movie for you? So I, I have
1: one of two criteria. One that gets me totally engaged in the world where I am able to just imagine the world around that supports the movie or, or engrosses me and in, in, in captures me in, in what that world would be like. Or one where life ends up following the movie or it, it, it captures life well. And that's one of the reasons why I love Office Space that
0: we'll talk about in a bit. All right. So, that leads us into tonight. Without further ado, for our 201st episode, we discuss the workplace satire from 1999, Office Space, celebrating its 25th anniversary this week. Written and directed by Mike Judge. Music by John Frizzle. Starring Ron Livingston as Peter Gibbons. Jennifer Aniston as Joanna. Stephen Root as Milton Wadhams. Gary Cole as Bill Lumberg. John C. McGinley as Bob Slidell. David Herman as Michael Bolton, Ajay Naidu as Samir Nahina Najjar, Diedrich Bader as Lawrence, Michael McShane as Dr. Swanson, Richard Reel as Tom Smikowski, Alexandra Wentworth as Anne, Greg Pitts as Drew, Paul Wilson as Bob Porter, and Todd Duffy as Brian. Recognition for this movie Office Space was released on February 19, 1999. It was a box office disappointment, making $12.2 million on a $10 million production budget. However, after repeated airings on Comedy Central, it sold well on home video and has since become a cult film. The cultural impact has been felt as well, with several aspects of the filming having become internet memes. A scene in which the three main characters systematically destroy a dysfunctional printer has been widely parodied. Swingline introducing a red stapler to its product line after the Milton character used one painted in that color as well for the film. Four years after the film's release, Judge was working on the Idiocracy screenplay with Ethan Cohen. During a break, the two went to an Austin Starbucks, and the baristas were doing impressions of Lumberg. Cohen asked Judge if they were only doing it because he was present. Whereupon, the barista turned around and asked the two if they had ever seen the movie. Other cast members found the film had reached people when strangers began associating them with their characters. Cole said that a year after release, on the service jobs he works when not acting, people began shouting dialogue from the movie at him. Aniston says that even today, when she is eating at a certain type of restaurant, people will ask if she likes their flair. Four years after the film's release, Judge recalled that one of his assistant directors on the film told him they had gone out to eat at a TGI Friday's and noticed that the wait staff were no longer wearing buttons on their uniforms. The flair Joanna quits her job over in the film. Asked why, the manager told him that after Office Space had come out, customers started making jokes about it, so the chain dropped the requirement from its dress code. So maybe I made the world a better place, he told Deadline Hollywood in 2014. Office Space currently holds an 81% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 68 score on Metacritic, and a 3.7 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, as we begin each
2: week, Dad, what is your relationship to this film? I think this is the third time I've seen the film. I'm trying to remember when the first time. Yeah, that's it. Um, I think the first time I watched it with you, and then I've watched it once since, and then I watched it now. I want to say that like the first time that
0: we truly watched it was like one of those weekends of like life fest when I was really younger. And we watched it with uncle Andy because we were just sitting around needing to watch something for movies. And I think he put it on, on like comedy central and then we rented it. I want to say like a couple of years later or something like that, but this has been kind of a peripheral movie that's just been around for a long time. And anytime it was on Netflix or whatever else, and you were searching for the office, this thing would like pop up and you're like, well, yeah, I got about an hour and a half to kill. Why not? It's a very easy, digestible movie. I think the first half is a lot better than the second half, which is most comedies. Usually the premise is where it's funniest. And it loses a little bit of steam as the film kind of goes along. But at least for the first, I would say, good 45 minutes. It's a
2: very highly watchable film. What did your mother say? I think she's seen it. I don't remember. (sighs) Boy, more than likely, she said it was stupid. Well, if that's the case,
0: then obviously it's good. I don't think we need her to determine whether the movie's good. Well, it's a stamp of approval. I understand, but we don't have the same corroboration like when we watch Dodgeball. (laughs) Yeah. Adam, what's your relationship to it?
1: Uh, I was in my freshman year of high school, right around when this movie started becoming popular on Comedy Central. And my friends and I were discussing what we wanted to do with our lives in the future. And I said, I wanted to be an engineer. And they said, you really want to sit in a cubicle all day? Don't you know what hell that is? And I'm like, yeah, I still think that's what I want to do. And they were like, hold that thought. And we put this movie on and (laughs) it was supposed to be a life lesson, but we just ended up laughing the night away while watching this movie. And then, Anytime we had a nasty
0: homework assignment, accusing the others of having a case in the Mondays. I mean, this this movie may compete with Dodgeball for most quotable lines. I think that one, I pulled 28 different quotes from it. But this is going to get up there. I figured you would. That's why I limited mine. I also kind of limited mine so that it allowed space for other things to flourish. So what is the movie about?
2: Just the sheer uh, monotony, boredom, stupidity of daily work and some of the requirements in a corporate culture that may have no real value or meaning. I
1: was going to go, it's a, it's a strive for, for meeting in a world that, that has a lot of redundant themes or unnecessary themes and how you struggle with that in your day to day life,
2: the only thing missing in this film is an employee handbook. I'm trying to think if they have one because technically <laughs> doesn't the memo count for that uh, it's certainly yeah. a policy statement <laughs> as i uh, as I make the joke, your mother insists on having the employee handbook is, is what is an employee handbook it's hr's justification to exist i I do think there is a nature of an
0: existential crisis over our place in the workplace, especially as I know this was made in a time when computers were just starting to take off. And so it was another tool, another era of where do we adapt and what are we going to adapt to with this massive new movement? But at the same time, I think we're getting into a place where we're starting to have questions of consideration. Will people need to work? And so I do think this movie could take on a a slightly new meaning, a a new light in this new era where there is on the forefront, eventually that AI will make certain jobs obsolete.
1: One of the things that struck me as I was rewatching this movie again, in in, in particular in Ron Livingston's role, is this was quiet quitting before quiet quitting became a thing.
0: Yeah, I, I would say, and I, I do remember watching it during the pandemic, but I don't know if it's changed for people since then, given that we've changed the nature of what is work
2: and where you work from uh, since that point in time. I don't know. It just seems ironic, that this questions the whole idea of being in the corporate world and in the corporate office space. And then we went to the other extreme, which was everybody working from home, and that had its own wrinkles and problems, and ultimately people adjusted to it, and now they're getting forced to come back to the office, and there's backlash about that and what's going on mentally and emotionally and morale-wise. It just seems that no matter where, what, or however you uh, organize it, work and workplace space is always a problem. So, what about this movie is so
0: universal that it's caught such a cult following after its initial release?
2: It has a lot to do with just the fact that certain things are in place in a corporation or any business that has to do with the fact that the initial intention was relevant and had some meaning or point. Okay. But at times it just gets to the point of being silly. And you, you know, you kind of look at it. And you start talking about the cover pages on the TPC reports and use every company has that inane situation of what is or is not, whether it be, um, what constitutes athletic shoes before everyone has a freak out it's TPS reports. I was a TPS,
0: excuse me, my mistake. Yeah. You, you can't get that wrong with the fans, the super fans that will be listening to this. Okay. It's one of those things like the color of the stapler. It matters. Yeah. But yes, I, I I think the cover pages on the TPS reports remind me a little bit of that we're supposed to clock in only from the front desk, iPad, and that's it. We can't log in from our phone anywhere else. Unless you're off-site, because then you don't have the option of logging in from the front desk.
1: Ugh. <sighs> There's some element of this movie that resonates with with your life, no matter what. I remember my very first job at Target, and I made a minor mistake, and my team lead approached me, the team lead from the adjacent department approached me. The executive team lead over the whole area approached me. The assistant store manager approached me and the store manager approached me. And all I can think of is that opening scene where Lumberg comes by then the next manager. Then he gets the phone call. And I've seen that play out in real life. And it hits home for me every time I see it. Yeah, this happens.
0: There's just so many redundancies that seem tedious that it becomes almost like PTSD for anybody watching the movie.
1: Or, uh, you know, technology working until it doesn't. The fax machine being the prime example. PC low letter, what is that? It's an error that nobody's seen before on this technology that's supposed to make your life easier. And you don't understand it, and you're just struggling with it. And here you are confronted with it.
2: Second law firm I worked for. My wife at the time was managing a, a convenience store, so she had to be to work at 5 a.m. And so I would get up, and the kids weren't awake uh, yet. So I would work at the dining room table for a couple hours and then get ready and get them ready and go to the- Needless to say, we were supposed to have 140 billable hours a month. That was the requirement for the associates. And by the halfway through the month, I would have 140 billable hours. Because I worked on those early mornings, and then I worked on Saturday mornings usually. And uh, the other associates all said, you got to cut it out, or they're going to expect us all to be doing this. So, of course, I would go home at lunch, walk home, and just stay there for two and a half hours. Because I had so many hours in, I was hiding. And so when I watch this movie, I think about that whole concept of... You know, you have to fit in, and you can disappear, and people aren't really paying that close of attention, and whatever. And yeah, the one that has stuck with me is there's always somebody that's like
0: the super chippy or chipper receptionist. Payable accounts receivable. Just a moment. You hear that in almost every flipping office. And when I worked at condo management, we had somebody that would like that was like that, and almost involuntarily would smile while talking to people like had this weird grin that she would do just so that she seemed extra chippy or chipper on phone calls. It was like the customer service rep taking over.
1: And see, I have the exact opposite experience. There's always a Melton, The guy who knows exactly where the line in the policy is, who will always drive you nuts. I was told I can listen to my radio at an acceptable volume between the hours of 9 and 11, and I'm listening to my radio at an acceptable volume between the hours of 9 and 11, and it just always the little things that just fit within, within the employee handbook that drive you absolutely <laughs> batty.
0: See, I am always that guy. Maybe not the proclivities of a Milton with the mealy mouth nature, but I've always been the guy who took the school handbook and figured out exactly what I could get away with, just skirting under the line and pushing every limitation they could have. It also helped eventually that uh, uh, a certain person was president of the school board. So there weren't too many things that were going to go on that uh, people weren't at least a little bit afraid of doing against
2: me. But still, I know we used to have uh, dress code or dress policy in the county for the bar And I used to get mad and I would go to the judges every year and gripe because it said men had to wear a jacket and tie and uh, the women had no dress code. There was nothing that said anything at all about female attorneys. There was nothing that they had to wear a jacket, they had to wear a skirt, they had to wear, they could come in basically wearing jeans and a t-shirt and it was acceptable. And so I kept complaining. So they said, well, no, no, it just says that all attorneys must. It, it doesn't make any difference. I said no, it doesn't. It says men shall. So I said I'm going to come in wearing a kilt. <laughs> now, are you going to wear the kilt properly and not have undergarments? Well, that's that's up to them to decide whether they want to check that or not. But uh, I always used to tell Ed Zapp that, and he roll his eyes and go, "No, no, no, no." And I'm like, "Yeah."
0: Well, I mean, if you didn't get through the metal detector
2: and had a cavity search, it would be easier. True. I got called in on a warrant for a client of mine and I said, I'm not dressed for court. You have to have a coat and a tie. I said, fine. So I went home and I picked out a uh, Looney Tunes tie and I wore that. And uh, the judge goes, was that for my benefit? I said, yes, judge, it was. He kind of smirked a little and passed it off because for whatever reason, people expect me to be kind of a jackass.
0: Not expect, know you to be. I'm just going to quietly sip my bourbon at this point. Yeah, bridge troll over here. So Adam, what about the DDL policies uh, is most reflective in this movie? Do do we have a banner out front that says, anything that's good for the company? No, we don't. And
1: they're Isn't a ton of things that I would say is reflective. Don't worry. Chris doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Oh, I'm being honest. I thought about that because I figured this question would come
0: up. (laughs) Yeah. The, the most I can think of is. Well, your boss does require you to work on Saturdays and Sundays.
1: No, he doesn't. I just do it because that's what has to be done to get it done. He hasn't ever come to me and go, you got to be here on Saturday. Now I have a brief due on Monday and I don't have it done better work on Saturday, but that's me being my own taskmaster, which I have done that in my own Bill Lumberg voice to myself. Yeah. I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in and, and work on Saturday, but that's about it.
2: Closest thing in this office that matches office space is the damn dress code, which drives me nuts.
0: no, One of the other things that really matches is our breakdowns in technology constantly, including our fax machine.
1: Yeah, I have referenced on more than one occasion that we should take it outside and beat it with a bat.
0: Yeah, I think I've made that reference before myself on just about any of our technologies. We do have a field immediately outside.
1: To be fair, Chris did just make a point on Monday morning's meeting about the necessity of doing cover letters correctly, so... Maybe we need a memo.
0: Okay, Dad, you ready to dig more into this movie?
2: (laughs) Sure. You have our plot summary for us? I do. In the suburban labyrinth of cubicles and copy machines, office space emerges as a wry and incisive commentary on the soul-sucking ennui of corporate America. Director Mike Judge masterfully crafts a tale that delves into the mundane yet oddly compelling lives of software company employees who find themselves trapped in a cycle of monotony and middle management absurdity. At its core, Office Space is a comedic exploration of existential dread centering on the disillusioned Peter Gibbons, played by the deadpan brilliance of Ron Livingston, who undergoes a profound existential crisis triggered by a botched hypnotherapy session. Liberated from the shackles of ambition, Peter embarks on a subversive journey of workspace rebellion alongside his equally disenchanted comrades, Michael Bolton, David Herman, and Samir Nahina Najjar, Ajay Nadu. Judge navigates the murky waters of office politics with razor-sharp wit, skewing corporate culture and its absurdities with the precision or with precision and hilarity, from the mind numbing TPS reports to the insidious machinations of upper management, every facet of office life becomes fair game for judges' biting satire. Thank you. Did you know? In
0: 2022, software engineer Hermanildo Valdez Castro was inspired by the movie Office Space conducting a similar scheme from the movie by editing code to divert shipping fees to a personal account. A report from the Seattle police mentions that a folder named Office Space Project was found on Castro's work laptop, and Castro admitted he was indeed inspired by the movie. Castro stole over $300,000 from the company Zulily. Did you know? TPS report has come to connote pointless, mindless paperwork, and an example of literary practices in the work environment that are meaningless exercises imposed upon employees by an inept and uncaring management. According to Judge, the abbreviation stood for Test Program Set in the movie. Did you know? Steven Root says he realized the movie's impact when people started asking him to sign their staplers. The red swingline stapler featured prominently in the film was not available until April 2002 when the company released it in response to repeated requests by fans of the film. Its appearance in the film was achieved by taking a standard swingline stapler and spray-painting it red. Root says when he shows up on sets today, the crew has usually ordered several boxes of red swingline staplers and left them waiting for him. Did you know? Mike Judge hated the marketing campaign for the film, particularly the poster, and believes it was one of the reasons why the film did not do well at the box office. For the film's release on home video, he was able to convince the studio to add the character of Milton to the poster, peeking out from behind the guy covered in post-it notes. Did you know? As of October 2018, the term ass-clown was officially entered in Webster's Dictionary, crediting writer Mike Judge for first using it in office space. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 202nd episode, we discuss the rock star satire, This Is Spinal Tap from 1984, celebrating its 40th anniversary. Written and directed by Rob Reiner, with music by and starring Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. We left off
2: at Best Performance. Dad, who do you have down? I have Steven Root. Of course you do. Of course I do, because I love Steven Root. I loved him from the time that I started watching network news and thought he was great then, and I've followed his career and think everything he's been in has been awesome. So um, I think he really personified Milton, and I think Milton is really the heart of the story.
0: Yeah, I I have a hard time believing that. I think Milton is a resolution of the plot, and that's about it. He's someone caught up in this, but I don't know if he's even the funniest character that I have down. I don't have him nominated for anything, even though this is one of his most iconic characters, I would say. It's fun. I have Mike Judge, the creative mind to come up with extensions, because originally the Milton character was the idea for the film or the kernel of the idea where he had run some Milton cartoons on SNL and they wanted an expansion of the Milton character. So not only does he expand that universe and make it a full feature length film, but he crafts and directs most of the jokes. He knows exactly what he's going for with this. And we know that that's the case because he's successfully done this with multiple comedies, either TV or in movies since, and he's still one of the more biting satirists of comedy that we have. Add in the fact that I think this is still somewhat universal because he did tap into something that he understood about the American workforce and its psyche going into this cubicle age. So for me, for my money, both the direction and the writing, the conceptualization of the characters and everything that goes into this, I give it to my judge.
1: I'm all about Ron Livingston. This movie doesn't go without him being as deadpan as he is and just matter of fact about things that most of us think and don't say out loud. This is stupid or, or, or whatever else when, when it needs to be said about corporate structure. I mean, how many times have we gone in and wish we could tell our bosses, boy, there's eight of you telling me the same thing and just don't. So I think it's Ron Livingston.
0: And it's funny you should mention that. I have him as my best secondary, partially for the sheer basis that somebody or this role in other hands, I think could have been been easily overplayed. His ability to take quiet desperation and feel like he's screaming without ever raising his voice, you can feel the angst, the failure, the monotony breaking him down at every turn in the opening of this film until he has no other options left but to get this weird hypnotherapy that eventually turns him into a nihilist. I don't know if that's supposed to be the lesson of the film is to be a nihilist as opposed to somebody who's just an existentialist or not, but for at least a portion of this film, I have entertained the thought. Regardless, his ability to soft play and kind of lead this Happy go lucky care where you can see there's been a switch flipped, but that it doesn't feel like it's a drastic change other than he just doesn't care anymore, I think is the key to unlocking this this portion of the film, because, yes, it would be one thing to emphasize all the things that are wrong in the beginning of the film. But you have to have somebody that you're willing to follow to the second portion of the film for the film to work.
1: Does nihilism work? Because he, he has his moments of empathy for his co-workers. And in fact, that's the impetus for stealing the fax machine. The moment at the party where, where he's touching Tom's foot after he got hit in the car accident is quite clear. And his general just human reaction to the thought of his girlfriend being with his boss. And, and his trouble processing that is just so human and emotional that I don't know that I can go full nihilist.
0: He's a full nihilist when he skips work and when he just doesn't come in and he doesn't care about anything that's going on. And I think slowly as he pulls out of the hypnotherapy, he comes to start caring again. So it obviously was not effective. In fact, that was one of my remaining questions is is what exactly pulls him out of not caring anymore? Because there is a period of time where he couldn't care less about anything
1: that uh, dovetail us into who we think is our best secondary characters. Sure. Since, since you've already gone there, I'm going to go with Dietrich Bader for, for my best secondary <laughs> Lawrence is fantastic. And it's such an out of the box role for him. Normally he's the quiet, slightly goofy academic. And this one, he is just the brash blue collar worker who, who just, says exactly what he is on his mind. And I think it's such a departure for what he normally does. And knowing quite a few of these folks, he plays it perfectly that, that I had to give him a nod.
2: For me, it was Gary Cole, because he just was so the example of the boss you want to hate. He doesn't do anything necessarily horrible or wrong. He's just grates on your nerves without ever really trying to and he played it very subtly and on point you know the whole well um i think uh you're uh gonna have to work on saturday i mean it just i just thought he did a really great job
1: See, Gary Cole made the one sin that you'll never hear a a boss make when he asks him to come in on Sunday on the answering machine saying, yeah, we fired a bunch of people, which they hadn't done yet. And so you're going to have to make up for the work for those people that are now missing. So not only did his character introduce a plot hole, but no boss would realistically say that.
0: I don't know. I've actually had. Some bosses that have basically told me that uh, I needed to help make up for all of the slack that people leaving our front desk had left us with.
1: Families
2: don't count. (laughs) I see. Um, I don't think it was me.
0: Uh Anyway, most charismatic, I also have Diedrich Bader. I think he has... Most of the funniest lines to me in this this film, dude man, I know that'll get your ass kicked. <laughs> I won't say anything either, Peter. Who the fuck is that? He's just always listening, he's always intruding on stuff. He doesn't understand that he's not supposed to be included in things, but you know, he's still the friend that will alert you when channel nine has boobies on.
1: Everybody needs that friend.
2: I wish I had a Lawrence. For most charismatic, I have Mike Judge because of the simple fact is, is that he created a, an environment or a story that transcends the story. There's so many iconic moments in this film that have a broader appeal than what's in the movie or in the script. And as a result, it's created a movement or a way of thinking about things that, that exceeds the actual movie itself. I mean, there are people who I'm sure quote from the movie or who uh, cite concepts from the movie who have never seen the movie or thought of the movie. And I think Mike Judge, whether it be this film, which kind of started it, his comedy has transcended a a broad space within American culture that I think leads one to believe it's more charismatic in general.
1: I like that. Although... One could argue that King of the Hill is a soft pitch for office space. So for me, I did Gary Cole and and his Lumberg for this one, because for just the reasons Dana said before, he's the boss. Everybody loves to hate. And every time he's on screen, you're just waiting for that. What is he going to say now that is just going to annoy me?
0: Best scene. I have it limited down to six at the moment. I have morning traffic because every time this film comes on that weird tune that feels kind of like a limbo pole could be used around it. Uh, and then him trying to weave in and out of traffic. Everybody's been there when they try and like bypass traffic and they don't stay in the same lane. And then the other lane starts moving. It's, it's a great way to start out this guy who just seems to have this routine that he's stuck in that he's not going any place but he keeps trying to make moves and he doesn't go anywhere. So very metaphorical. Then I have the Lumberg scene, which we've talked about a few times already, but obviously is one of the more famous parts of this movie. I have the actual hypnosis scene because I still think that's just ridiculous. I have the Bobs, so his first meeting with the Bobs. And then I have Fax demolition, which obviously has been parodied a lot. And then I have the resolution where in a tech is burned down he's starting to work in construction milton's on a beach and that entire sequence so out of these did you have any that i you thought i missed that we should add in or does this cover it so
1: i did have one i love the scene when he's gone full nihilist and in his expression of just needing a change he takes down the wall in his cubicle pushes it over just leaves it in the middle to expose this beautiful view just ah this is much much better and i think that that is one of those moments where life parodies art because shortly after this is where we see the open concept office where that realization that the the view and the aesthetics of the workspace you're in can be much better than the standard great cubicle
2: dad any to add Yes, I think you miss the whole steal, Them coming up with the concept of how to steal the money, then implementing it, and then when they uh, find out that they're uh, screwed up, all of the machinations about what's going to happen to them if they're just if they're caught. I'll call that Superman three.
1: That works. Okay. Superman
2: three. So,
1: quick question, Tom: Does the the driving scene include? the Michael Bolton microaggression of him jamming out to a rap song and then realizing there's a black guy next to him and having to turn it down and just feel that uncomfortableness. Are we including that in that scene or is it its own discreet moment?
0: So, yes, I did include that also in that that sequence because it's about as sphincter tightening as uh, I can think of.
1: Still works in today's PC
0: culture. Correct. Oh, yeah. All right. Out of these, what is the best scene? I ultimately went for the Lumberg scene. I think that the introduction of Lumberg and him coming by to discuss the TPS reports is probably the most iconic thing. It's my favorite scene and it's my most indelible moment. Yes, I agree.
1: Yeah, it's got to be. It is the most quoted scene. It's just the scene everyone thinks of when you think of this movie.
0: Hey, Peter, what's happening? Say, uh, we got to talk about your TPS reports. They're supposed to have a cover page. Did you get the memo? I mean, it's not just him in that sequence, but he is the most notable by far. Yeah, definitely agree. So that's going to skip short a little bit on the favorite scenes and the most indelible moments. I guess we're at another break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley Rumor in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 186 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week?
2: Yes. Bob Edwards, 76, American journalist on NPR, radio host, Morning Edition on NPR, Bob Edwards show, Peabody Award winner in 1999. Mojo Nixon, 66, American musician. Debbie Gibson is pregnant with my two-headed love child, Elvis is everywhere and an actor in Super Mario Brothers and Great Balls of Fire. Michael Jaston, 88, English actor, Only Fools and Horses, Doctor Who, and the film Nicholas and Alexandra. And Toby Keith, 62, American country singer, Should Have Been a Cowboy, How Do You Like Me Now, and Red Solo Cup, among his singles. So I will say
0: I am not a fan of country music in the slightest. It's probably the one area of music that I really don't understand or get behind. I think it's has a lot to do with the cultural aspect that goes into country music that I just don't understand, especially being somewhat of a, for lack of a better term, privileged and elite middle-class white guy in this country. And, for also what it's worth, highly liberal. But this is one of the few country singers that I knew well of, that his music had translated. I knew several of his songs. I remember the first time listening to him with my Uncle John on our deer hunting trip one year and being introduced to him for the first time. And some of his stuff I did enjoy, even if I didn't necessarily agree with a lot of his personal opinions. But it's one that I think, whether you were a country music fan or not, you felt a little bit of the loss of somebody who could take something like a red solo cup and make it a super smash hit. The army recruiting will never be the same without Toby Keith. Well, they still have Tom Cruise. So, you know, there is that. That's the Navy son. doesn't have to be the Navy. Tom Cruise recruits for the mission impossible force or impossible mission force. He recruits for Navy pilots. I think you could also say he recruits for the Air Force, or as my brother-in-law would put it, the Chair Force. So, you know, we've still got some national symbols there. And for whatever they're not doing, there is still Sylvester Stallone possibly doing a 15th Rambo movie.
2: Tom Cruise does also recruit for
0: his church. And so we remember these here fondly for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Okay, let's transition awkwardly to best funniest lines.
1: Yeah, that's a real case of the Mondays.
2: I was told I couldn't listen to my radio at a reasonable volume from 9 to 11. I was a yeah, reasonable volume. Samir, no one in this country can
0: ever pronounce my name right. It's not that hard. Nahi-na-na-na-jar. Nahi jar yeah, well, at least your name isn't Michael Bolton. You know, there's nothing wrong with that name. There was nothing wrong with it until I was about 12 years old and that no-talent ass clown became famous and started winning Grammys. Well, why don't you just go by Mike instead of Michael? No way, why should I change? He's the one who sucks. That's
2: a straight shooter with middle management written all over him. <laughs> uh, next Friday is um, Hawaiian Shirt Day. The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care.
1: It's been my experience that the cake to person ratio has been off and out of whack, and I would like a piece of cake, and I'm worried that if I pass this, that I won't get a piece of cake. I
2: asked for a minute, and they brought me a pina colada.
0: Eight, Bob. So that means that when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that will only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired.
2: Hey, man, there's titties on Channel 9. <laughs> uh, we always find it's better to fire people on a Friday. And a boss who used to think that it was better to fire people right before the Christmas party. That way you could save on their dinner.
0: Michael Bolton. I told those fudge packers I liked Michael Bolton's music.
2: It's a map where you can
1: jump to conclusions. I believe you have my stapler. Thank like you said, set the whole place on fire.
0: Hello, Peter. What's happening? Um I'm gonna need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around nine, that would be great. Okay. Oh, oh and I almost forgot, uh I'm gonna also need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday too K. Okay? Uh we are lost some people this week and uh we sorta need to play catch up. All right. Samir, Naheem,
1: uh, not
0: going to work here anymore anyway. Not going to
1: worry about that problem.
0: I'm out. So I was sitting in my cubicle today, and I realized ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. Did you get the memo about the TPS reports? Peter, what would you do if you had a million dollars? Lawrence, I'll tell you what I'd do, man. Two chicks at the same time, man. (laughs) That's a good stopping point. (laughs) Oh, no, I got more. All right, let's hear it. Let me ask you something. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, Sounds like somebody has a case of the Mondays. No. No, man. Shit, no, man. I believe you'd get your ass kicked saying something like that, man. I can't believe what a bunch of nerds we are. We're looking up money laundering in the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. And finally, this is the one I wanted to end on. Corporate accounts payable. Nina speaking. Just a moment. All right. Now I'm done. All right. Are we ready for our Stanley rubric? Yes. All right. Legacy is up
2: first. Dad, do you want to go first or second? I'm going to go first for Legacy. This is a film that took about four or five years to get legs and then take off. I think the industry came to respect it. It became much more popular. It led to several more Mike Judge films. It kind of expanded his base. So I went with a four for the industry and the public really got into this film and it became a cult classic where people were buying it on DVD or uh, for their their personal collection. So I went with a four for the public for an eight overall. It's going to be much different for me with impact and significance though. So my scores aren't terribly
0: far off from yours. I would say that the Industry, though, probably doesn't have the same reverence for this, and that's why it's a cult classic. Even though I don't think that the critic reviews are necessarily bad on the movie, I don't think that they agree at the humor level and maybe don't revere this in the same way that uh, I think the majority of the cult following does. They don't hold this as being one of the smart comedies necessarily, as much as we probably revere this for all of the lines and the memes and all the other popular cultural stuff that has translated. So while I agree with your four for the audience, I had a three for the industry. So I have a seven.
1: So I was doing some research on this and I was surprised to learn at the time that Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars. So because of that, and and for the reasons that that were stated, I actually am back at the eight because I think He's a fairly good barometer, or Mr. Ebert is a fairly good barometer for what the industry was thinking, and he thought pretty highly of it at the time.
0: Now, I should mention that impact and significance are the initial five years, so that would probably apply more there, as opposed to the outward legacy, which is five years later. So that would be from about uh, 2004 on is more having to do with legacy, and impact and significance would be about 99 to 2004. So I don't know if that changes it for you.
1: No, it really doesn't because, okay, most people don't really look at what Ebert does (laughs) at the time or or aren't necessarily aware of it. I just used him as a barometer for what they they thought of it. But I'm more on the low side for impact because it did take forever to gain legs.
0: All right, so that's a 7.67 between the three of us as the average. Impact and significance. I don't think that the industry thought very highly of this. It barely made back, if at all, its budget. It took a while for the home video sales to catch up. It was only through repeated viewings on one particular cable channel that this kind of caught on and caught fire. It, however, was in the era where DVD sales and such could really make a movie. In the streaming era, I don't know if we have quite the same similarities or have a similar structure where there's anything that can catch fire like that after its initial run, that it's just a film that nobody paid attention to when it originally came out. And for example, it just hits Netflix and all of a sudden becomes wildfire. We've had a few kind of examples like that, but there were a lot more back in this time that had this, especially with comedies. I think that was often a thing that would happen by comparison I do think that the audience started to catch on within that five year period enough for me to give it a little bit of a bump, but I had only a 1.5 for the industry and I have about a 3.5 for the audience at large, because I do think there was a development growing probably from about year three to year five. That makes it enough for me to give a little bit more credence to the audience portion of impact here, especially given that by 2002 Swingline had to already start making the red Swingline stapler in response to the calls or the demand for them. So I do think it it did catch on quickly enough to be within this five-year period. I have a five overall.
1: All right. So
0: I had a five overall. One
1: within the industry, the, the notes on this was Mike Judge was told um, after all his casting on this film that maybe they should he should have listened to the studio on on their suggestions of like using Ben Affleck instead of Ron Livingston or or some more name appeal to try and draw people to this movie. Um, so I think that that really echoes Tom's point about how this was viewed within the industry. Um, and so I gave it a one there, but I gave it a four in the audience appeal because. And this was one of my favorite things when I was researching this. Ron Livingston, in a 2003 interview, which is roughly four years after the movie, in an interview, is saying people were telling him they were quitting their jobs because of this movie and and kind of the call to action that it sparked within them. So if someone's willing to make that drastic of a life decision based on a comedy they saw, I think that's a, a pretty dramatic impact. So five overall.
2: For me, industry, I went with a 2.5. Roger Ebert gave it high marks. Other critics liked it. The fact that Comedy Central picked it up and started showing it showed that there was an institutional element to this that they thought it was worth showing. The public was very slow to catch on. So the industry, I went with a 2.5. For the public, I went with a 1 because I don't think the public caught on Very quickly, I will go up to 1.5 based upon some of the comments you've said. So I'm going to go with a four overall for Impact and Significant. So that's a
0: 4.67 average between the three of us. Novelty. I'm not sure Office satire is all that unique to this movie. I think this was hitting a moment in time where the workplace had changed. And so it's reflective of a different workplace culture than we'd had necessarily on screen. But we'd been having workplace culture satires for going back to like merely Tyler Moore and even further back than that, probably. So I don't know if if this by itself is a comedy about the workplace elevates it enough to receive a high novelty score. I just think it's well executed and it's a very funny movie. And so on the basis that it, it holds up as far as how funny it, it remains and how well it was executed by most of its principal cast. I still give it a six.
1: So I, I had it as a, as a five because in a lot of
0: ways to
1: me, this was a slightly different take on King of the Hill I mean, we have a a protagonist who's who's struggling through his career and his career choices and and some of the the silly things that come with it. Um, and since those are both done by Mike Judge, it's not even an original Mike Judge idea. Now it is very well executed, uh, as Tom said. I think the the lines are are quickly identifiable and, and resonate really well. It's very funny and continues to be very funny. And I think. The fact that some of it, you know, and this'll go into another character but or another category later down, but the fact that some of this is playing out, you know, with the quiet quick culture and things it shows that it was a little ahead of its time, so I'll give it a
2: five. Novelty try going back further than the Mary Tyler Moore show. Try going back to the show she started on, which is the Dick Van Dyke show. Which was all, a, or which is a large portion about him working in an office writing comedy and his interplay with his boss, the Ellen Brady show. So yeah, it's not that novel. Now the setting and the fact that it was more broad or more open and brought more current because of technology and where things were. Yeah, I gave it a little bit higher than normal. So I wanted the five point five.
0: And that actually will be the average between the three of us. Okay, let's move to classicness then. Dad, this is your category. I'll let you start.
2: Well, usually I start with a seven as we generally do and kind of work back up and down. There's a lot here that has been very classic. You know, a lot of the same concepts and what's going on in workplace. It's no different now than it was. Now, I had a, you know, so as much as that would bring it up, maybe to an eight and a half, uh, maybe even a nine at times. There's a lot here that's dated because of the way the computer technology is and the machines and how things are run within the corporate culture. So I went backward. I gave it a seven point five overall. So I had it
1: a little higher. I had it at an at an eight. I think one of the the defining features for this is it as a comedy none of the jokes were overly dated maybe some of the the execution of the jokes you know using a floppy disk to to insert the virus is a little dated but everyone can imagine the the judge that or the the boss that's asking them to come in on a saturday the blue collar guy who's asking who's who's saying You know, Case of the Monday is going to get your ass kicked. They hold up well. I think the movie aged well because, like I said, a lot of what Ron Livingston is complaining about is is very much what we're seeing in quiet, quick culture. People aren't doing the extra anymore for these companies because they're just not seeing the benefit to doing it. So they're trying to find ways around it. In fact, I know... Of friends who use Lawrence's just avoid the boss on Friday strategy to avoid getting asked to come in on Saturday, and because of that, I rate it just a little bit
0: higher. So, I'm gonna be a high man on all three of us. I think that this movie is still very funny because there's a lot universally in this that still holds up, and as such, because this is a comedy, I give it a little bit extra bump than I otherwise might have. Additionally, I don't know. I'm usually somebody who's pretty bothered by outdated technology when I see it, but there's nothing really in this movie for whatever reason that seems to bother me. Most of the tech, even though they're working in a tech firm, is kind of periphery. Yes, he's playing Tetris on an old computer at one point in the film, but it doesn't really feel all that different than anything else that you'd find still in a lot of office culture. I also think the cubicles are still such... A commonplace yet to the American workforce, particularly given that I recently was in a job uh, less than a year ago that had that type of thing. There's something that appeals to me about the way that this movie looks that holds up in a way that I don't know if other movies of the time would necessarily hold up. So because they don't make a lot of dated references necessarily, and because there are a lot of things in this movie that are still relevant I do have this a little bit higher than I otherwise would for the seven because I start to think that there's an aspect of timelessness already that's in this comedy because it transcends the notion of what the worst workplace was in 1999. So I had an 8.5 and that puts the average at an 8 for the category overall. Rewatchability. Uh, Since this is Adam's first time on, I usually let our guest lead this off since this is a favorite of yours.
1: All right, well, I'm going to propose a, a new test. I know you guys have a couple that other guests have, have floated on here, but here's mine. If I saw Office Space in the $5 movie bin, I'm buying it. It's worth the 5 bucks to have in my collection and watch over and over again just when the mood strikes me. And I don't know that I could say that about every movie, and because of that, and when I think about the movies that, that can't, tickle my fancy or or otherwise you know spark me to to watch them again the ones in the five dollar movie bin are generally the ones that that I'll watch over and over so I give it an eight and a half
0: so you mentioned before that this is a film well or the concept of the film that you watch when you're sick I have I think the last three times I was sick watched this film because it's really easy to put on and watch for the first 15 minutes and then not care about the rest of the movie. So you can fall asleep and have a nap and it doesn't matter. It's kind of that kind of movie for me. So my onus to putting it on is only at about a four, but the fact that it is ever on, I will always leave it on. So I have a nine because I have five for the leave it on portion.
2: (laughs) I don't know whether this makes any sense or not. I gave it a little less because I don't need to rewatch it or that often because of the fact that so many of the lines are so memorable, you know what they are. You don't need to necessarily rewatch it in order to understand or think about the humor associated with some of the lines and some of the scenes. So I went with a 7.5 for that. You know, yeah, I should watch it periodically because of that, but, it's not, not that necessary. I'm going to remember, you know, uh, Lumberg. I'm going to remember Milton. I'm going to remember I don't need to watch it. It's so good it gets knocked. I know. It makes a little, a little, uh doesn't make the best sense, I guess. I thought about it and I'm like, nah, go with it.
0: So that's an 8.33 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 88% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.05 overall. So to recap the categories, we had a 7.67 for Legacy, a 4.67 for Impact and Significance, a 5.5 for Novelty, an 8 for Classicness, an 8.33 for Rewatchability, a 9.05 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 43.22, Forty three point two two and currently placing it on our list between Superman, the movie and the cane
2: mutiny. <laughs> uh, OK, I didn't make the numbers. I know. Interesting. Our list is rather eclectic. I can see that the, the Kane mutiny is not one you hear often. Oh, It's one of my favorite films, but I'm old. Does not surprise me.
0: At all. That he's old or that it's one of his favorite movies? Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. As always, if you have any commentary on how we did our scoring or just generally disagree with us, you can write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on any of our socials at Podcast. Let's move to remaining questions.
2: What snaps Peter out of his hypnosis? You don't need to snap out of the hypnosis. Hypnosis wears off at, over time. I think you see the clear demarcation over the car
1: accident. That's kind of the point where he starts feeling again.
0: I was going to say about the point when he's at the party and the Lumberg thing comes up. I think that's that's truly what does him in by the end of it. I don't think it's the first straw, but I do think it's the last straw.
1: It was either that or uh, the scene where he asked Lawrence to come over and Lawrence says, no, man, I don't want you fucking up my life either.
0: All right. So this is the entire thing that ruins the ending for me, because I just happen to be somebody who thinks too much about this stuff. So in the end, Livingston draws out all the money and writes a check for the exact amount of the bank account and slips it under Lombard's door. But supposedly Milton finds it, cashes the check, which is made out to Inatech or to Bill Lumberg, and is now on
2: a beach in Mexico. How does he cash a check that's made out to somebody else? Let's put it this way. Have you ever, on happenstance, signed some, you know, like Donald Duck on the back of a check that's made out to you? It cashes. The bank very seldom ever checks. Nobody pays any attention and usually what ends up happening in order to catch it is somebody in accounting or whatever finds the check and realizes that, you know, it's been cashed or erroneously cashed. Who's gonna call him on it? If he just signs his signs uh the company name on it and cashes the checks.
1: So on that note, it is the fact that it's made out to Inatech that is the fact that it'll to me, allows him to cash it. There's an accounts payable department that's two desks over from him. You're telling me they don't have a stamp that says in attack payable to address that you can just stamp on the back of the check? That's where my money is. Put the stamp on, now I have the money. It's endorsed.
0: All right, fair enough. Any remaining questions for either of you?
1: Do you think the, the bobs ever caught on that the amount of middle management was actually the problem. It wasn't the the lack of buy-in in the company. So his, his big gripe was that he had eight bosses that came and talked to him about the TPS reports. And their response to him was to make him middle management and further perpetuate the problem.
0: No, I think their immediate response was going to be to give him stock options. So as not to keep highlighting that the problem is middle management. So the likelihood of them actually addressing the true problem is not likely, at least in my book. So I
1: had that thought. And then they asked Bill Lumberg about, or they asked Bill Lumberg the following question, how much time do you spend on TPS reports? So they at least have some weird awareness of it.
0: Are they employees of Initech or are they outside consultants? Outside consultants, yeah. I mean, are they paid by Bill Lumberg himself? So at that point, how much of their reports is actually going to be carried out? Or are they just glorified people to come in and address, you know, who is fireable and then give that a report and then they move on? If they're there to actually be able to make some real changes, then maybe. But I don't see where they're doing anything other than trying to move a little bit of uh, deck
2: furniture around on the
0: Titanic.
2: No, they give, they give senior management cover on uh, how to eliminate jobs and cut costs without them having to make the tough decisions. That's what their, that's what their purpose is, which is why you use outside people because they don't have to respond to anybody. If somebody gets fired you know, on Friday they're gone. They don't have to live with the ramifications. So, and Dana, this one's kind of a question
1: for you, since you're you're a business owner. It struck me as I was watching the the movie that there was a ton of people who actually had no place in the in in the actual production of whatever they were doing. Pam and accounts receivable. Her whole job was to answer the phone. Go. Pamela and accounts receiving just a moment, and then transfer them to somewhere. Her job could have been done by a switchboard. And Milton, he didn't really have a job anymore because he was laid off in two thousand nine, and they just kept paying him. And then you look at Tom Stadinsky's or or however you say his name's character, and his job was really done by the secretary who took the the questions from the customers and the engineers who needed the specs. So how hard is it really to root out people who aren't adding something when it's so prevalent in this movie?
2: Well, for the first five years of the, of my office, we had an automated switchboard at the front desk. We didn't have a receptionist. And I had outside consultant come in and say, no, you need to have a personal touch. You need to get rid of that and have people. So for the next uh, seven years, I've spent continuously trying to find people who could handle that job and would stay more than six weeks.
0: Well, I'll also say that there were certain employees during the course of things where I made very impassioned arguments that either they were not doing their job. They had no interest in doing their job. They were hurting other people in the course of doing their job or just simply were a net negative and yet would stay for probably a year longer, at least than they probably should have.
1: Right. And my other thought that I had on this movie was, why are Samir and Michael surprised that they're on the canned list? They're in a terrible spot in the office right next to the non-functioning fax machine that's loud as all get out. They're sharing a two-foot cubicle, so they have the worst office space possible as compared to, you know, Ron Livingston's character who has a full cubicle to himself right next to the door. And then when things go sideways, Michael Bolton's character is, I always do that, I always make the careless mistake. Why are they surprised at the end of the day that they're the ones getting canned when the the expert's report comes out.
0: Because you never think that you're the expendable one until it does happen to you. You always think you're the hero of your own story and the
2: hero doesn't get fired. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is only 10% of people realize that they are competent in what they're doing or incompetent or that have some real clue as to the functioning of their job. That means 90% of people who do their job do not know what they're doing. And when I heard this, I stopped to think about the fact that if I were into trouble and I needed advice, I started thinking of all the lawyers I knew. And I literally only came up with about 10% of them that I would ever bother to retain or ask questions of. The rest of it, I'd go, no fucking way would I ask for advice from them. And that's the same concept of what's going on in the workplace here is these people have no clue that they're not doing their work or being functional or productive.
1: I guess. I don't know. I just look at
0: the context clues and go, huh? Yeah, that was foreseeable. So your question is, is why aren't people more self-aware? I guess. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Do they not have computer backups off-site for the accounting or a set of books with an off-site accountant that they could track the money yet? Like, how are they magically okay because the building burned down?
1: So the the detail in this that's kind of the fly in the ointment is it's a Inatech employee credit union. So I don't know that they would actually have files off books. And it's early enough in the technological era, that I don't know that they would have keystroke trackers to actually track who put the virus.
0: Nothing to add, Dad? Nothing. All right. How do you not immediately ask Bill,
2: Bill Lumberg, to clarify? Okay, it's not like the guy's name was Smith. How many people did you know named Lumberg? He at least knew two. Yeah, but you... <laughs> Okay, fine. All right, so there's two Lumbergs. No, I'm sorry. It's a pretty unique name. Not only is it a unique name,
1: but he's been dating her long enough for her to go to parties and stuff with him, and I guarantee you he's witched about his boss who has made his life miserable for these TPS reports that she had to know who he was asking about by context clues. This isn't like, oh yeah, that Lumberg, and you wouldn't think about the fact that the guy that this guy's complaining about nonstop might be the one he's thinking of with that name.
0: Yeah, I I just don't buy that there would be such a misunderstanding between the two. Somebody would have asked a, a clarifying question or something else. Not at least that she forcibly tries to get herself out of the car and then they have this big row and whatever, at some point, somebody's going to clarify and say, "You mean Bill,
2: right?" Well, this is no different than you who criticize your mother because she doesn't like watching Family Guy because the dog talks and has sex, and your comment is, "Is oh, but you have no problem with a talking rabbit? What's up, Doc? Or a talking duck who's chasing around Elmer Fudd or?" and your comment being that this this is nonsensical, this is a comedy. Don't try to draw something out of here that has to be in place in order for it to make humor. This is consistent with the humanity of this movie. Everyone
1: makes assumptions based on their own information. He made an assumption based on the fact that it was his boss that was tormenting his life.
2: Dad, any remaining questions for you? I have remaining questions, but nothing that I need to bring up in the show this week. Okay. Uh, Any quick remaining thoughts? Uh, Oscar season's coming. We're getting to the point of... What do you mean coming? It's been here for weeks. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's... I have a couple of uh, potential movies for the bet. So you uh, have sworn that you are going to seek vengeance... Yeah, I'm giving you no quarter this year. I was nice last year and it screwed me. Yeah, anybody who's listened to this show, the concept of you being nice to me, really? Okay.
0: Okay, I was. Okay. It's on tape. They can go and listen to it themselves if they really want to. So what are we doing about the tiebreaker this year? I'm picking first. I've lost the last two years. Okay, that's fine. I have a list prepared. I have some good names going. You've already thought about the Immemorium? I've been tracking it for an entire year so that I had this ready Uh, to go. Wow.
2: Okay. Yeah. Just a little competitive, huh?
0: I am how my father made me.
2: I was about to say,
0: that's the the pot calling
1: the kettle black, you (laughs) know?
0: Me? He who used to uh, routinely... Make lopsided fantasy trades when I was about nine and didn't know any different and thought one my dad time, would
2: screw me. One time.
0: No, that was just the most mm-hmm. egregious one. And after that, I learned to draft Garrett Anderson right before you every time. Yeah, well, I don't really have any additional thoughts for the week. So I think that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. The numbers all go to 11. Look right across the board, 11, 11, 11, and oh, I see, and most amps go up to 10. Next week, for our 202nd episode, we discuss the rock star satire, This Is Spinal Tap from 1984, celebrating its 40th anniversary, written and directed by Rob Reiner, with music by and starring Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D, Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new or at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Find us on our YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxed, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.
1: Thanks guys for having me. This was fun.